Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is Hazel Sinclair with a warm welcome to Basement Writers. A group was formed by like-minded people who participated in a family stories group. This was held by Literacy Aotearoa and was tutored by Sandy Mackay, who is also an author. At the conclusion of the course, we continued as a group, such is our passion to write. We encourage each other with our stories and poems, striving to achieve the best we can. We are diversified, coming from a wide range, age group and backgrounds. People who like to share a factual, fictional and in some instances a mixture of both within our stories. This is our third series, episode one. Today we have four more stories from our writers. Firstly, I have my own story which was inspired by a dream. It is called The Perfect Murder. It would be fair to say there had been bad blood between us for many years. He had persecuted me many times and I was going to put an end to it. It was premeditated, but there would be no proof to link me to the scene. There would be nothing for forensics to connect me to his death. No identifiable murder weapon and most important, no DNA. Even the drug used to sedate him would have exited his body before the blood test was taken, rendering the toxicology report useless. The simplest method would have been to use a martial arts technique. Being a trained martial artist, that would place suspicion on me. That would have been too easy. His death was going to be the perfect murder, unsolvable due to lack of proof and motive. The homemade weapon would have the forensic team searching for answers. Many people loathed this poor excuse of a man, and I would be a long way down the list. We had a history going back to when he was a corrupt cop. Our paths crossed many years later when he was a corrupt private investigator. He thought I was going to be sent down for an offence that... He had gained access to houses using bogus search warrants served on myself and others. I was not given a prison sentence and served home detention while rehabilitating from a hip operation. I had changed my plea to guilty because I urgently needed the operation. Probation were not happy with me having the operation while on home detention, but it had been prearranged so they could do nothing about it. The soon-to-be-dead man told the probation officer to strongly oppose a non-custodial sentence, but the plea deal had been made with the prosecution. Mr Corruption had been following me around lately, trying to make me react. He was following me on his own accord, having been sacked from the job he initially had of trying to prosecute me for fraud due to the way he and his company acted against myself and others with the bogus search warrants and their surveillance tactics. 
He had a problem believing that some people do in fact have injuries that prevent us from working. I think his problem is that he probably left the force because of a bogus injury. Therefore was in the mind that everyone was a fraud. Committing the murder was so easy as he is partial to the odd drink or two. It was a fancy occasion and I had slipped behind the bar while one of the barmaids took a break. When he placed his next order, I casually squirted some sedating medication into his drink. It was near the end of the night and he was going to be staying overnight in one of the rooms. He had no one to go home to and often stayed overnight, thus making my job easier. I had also booked for the night under a false name and was going to be in an adjoining room. The only key was in my possession. I had stolen the main key many months before, having locked the adjoining door when I did so to ensure there would not be a change of lock. There was no suspicion about his drunken state. That was how his night usually ended. Not having to worry about him getting home, they let him drink more than they should. I had retired to my room an hour before I heard his door unlock. Listening carefully, I waited in my room until he had settled for the night. I changed into a bodysuit, the hood pulled over my head, a surgical mask, leather gloves and placed surgical booties over my shoes. Having unlocked the adjoining door earlier, I quietly slipped into his room. He was laying on his back, snoring with each breath in the semi-lit room. The curtains were open, emitting a soft glow from the street lights. His room was warm and there was only a sheet covering him. Standing over him, I leaned forward, gently pulling the sheet back. With the weapon held firmly in both hands, I aimed for the heart, thrusting deep. His body arched in response to the force of the thrust, emitting a groan as it was invaded. I waited for him to take his last breath. Then turning him on his side, facing away from me, I dislodged the weapon. Blood from the wound oozed onto the sheet beneath him, and I returned him to his back. Washing the blood from the weapon, I placed it in a plastic bag for disposal. After changing into another disguise, I packed everything into my suitcase and quickly made my way down the cameraless corridor, exiting without being seen. This was a murder that could not be traced to me. I had paid cash for the room, therefore no identification was required. I, along with others, was already in my fancy dress at the time of registration. Mr Corruption had persecuted his last victim. This is Hazel. You are listening to Basement Writers in association with Literacy Aotearoa. Literacy changes lives. Improve your skills and find your voice at Literacy Aotearoa. For further information, phone 477-2055. Our second reader is Val Cayford. Hello, Val. Hi, Hazel. Today I'm reading Willow's Moon. It had been a bad day. When she thought about it, it had been a bad month. Even two months if she thought a bit harder. Things seemed to be breaking down all around them. First it was the washing machine, then Patrick's old tractor, vet bills for not one but two sick dogs, 
a leaking roof and rain, so much bloody rain. To top it all off, Patrick had sprayed her organic patch with his home-brewed fertiliser today. The stink alone was bad enough, but she'd been trying something new herself and now she would never know the difference it could have made. What a bloody waste of time, she thought. I know he was only trying to help, but I did tell him what I was going to do. Willow pushed wisps of grey hair off her face and sighed. She picked up the cup of tea she'd poured twenty minutes earlier, swallowed a lukewarm mouthful with a grimace and tipped the rest down the drain. The night sky drew her through the window above the sink. Come on, girl, get a grip, she thought. No one's dying. Did you say something? Patrick asked from the other side of the kitchen, his head still buried in his book. Willow dried her cup and placed it on the bench beside the kettle. Nah, just thinking out loud. I think I'll get some fresh air for a few minutes. Okay. Patrick didn't lift his head. The panelled wooden door gave its usual groan as Willow pulled it closed and stepped out onto the back porch. The sky wasn't black, she decided. It was aubergine, just like the ones that she admired at the market and couldn't buy because of a bad experience they'd had one night and Patrick refused to even try them now. A perfectly round moon hung above her, as orange as that vase that she'd bought back in the 70s when orange glass was so in. It swam eerily before her as she gazed upwards. Her eyes watered with the cold almost as much as her nose and she sniffed, thinking, what was it her dad used to say? Red sky at night? Well, the sky wasn't red tonight, but it certainly was delightful. Willow felt a flush of warmth at the thought of her dad and despite the cold air unzipped her jacket and stretched her arms into the air as if to touch that shimmering orange that hung in the sky. Pulling the night air into her lungs, she closed her eyes and paused, feeling the air inside her, then lest she let it escape, slowly lowering her arms in one fluid movement. With her eyes still closed, Willow stood listening to the night, just enjoying the feeling, storing it away for when she needed to remember its pleasure. A calmness filled her body. Even though she was still standing, she felt like she was floating on a pocket of warm summer air. Minutes later, she was still floating when a flicker of light teased her eyes open. She snapped her mouth shut to trap the gasp that was on its way out and stood gazing in disbelief at the scene before her. On the carved wooden acorn that served as a finial on the banister were two creatures that she could only describe as fairies. They definitely had wings and skimpy little dresses of tattered-looking muslin. The muslin was all the colours of the autumn leaves that tumbled across the lawn. The two fairies were having a right old barney. One had fiery red hair that seemed to curl out in all directions. She was pulling on a handful of the other one's black tresses, trying to kick her in the shins with a bare foot that seemed to glow like a sparkler on Guy Fawkes every time it made contact. The black-haired fairy was screeching in a high-pitched wail of pain. Her iridescent wings fluttered helplessly as she tried to get away. The light that had first alerted Willow seemed to be coming from their wings, and the more noise the screeching fairies made, the brighter the light became. She watched, spellbound, but her arms seemed to have a mind of its own, and it lifted slowly from her side to the banister. I knew I was relaxed, she thought, but in that instant, the scrapping fairies became aware of her presence, and the lights went out. They just disappeared. 
Not even a solitary sparkle was left. Willow blinked, then hurried down the steps to to place a shaking hand on the acorn as if she might feel something that would make her believe what she had just seen. But there was nothing, just the cold night air and the rustle of the leaves floating to the lawn and the breeze that had suddenly got stronger. She stood gazing out across the lawn at the moon that was now perched at the top of the lone poplar on the other side of the paddock. Had she really been out here that long? She zipped up her jacket as a shiver ran across her shoulders and turned to climb the steps, her hand brushing the top of the acorn. Stupid thing, she thought. Her dad had bought it at a farm auction. And as this was the only set of stairs in the house, here is where he mounted it. Laughing at the memory, Willow sat down on the porch swing. It began to sway back and forth, a familiar motion with its own creaks and groans. She smiled, pulling her jacket closer. This really was her happy place. How lucky am I, she thought, and continued to gaze at her shimmering moon. Thank you, Val. What a truly magical ending following a few months of despair. A third reader is Anel Dunga. Hello, Anel. Hi, Hazel. This story is inspired by a tear talk by Chimamanda Adichie. The story title, A Single Story. After I saw her video, I gathered my own experience and compiled to create this story. I hope after hearing this story, you, the listeners, might have a different view about Nepal. It might change, but it's up to you. If that change happens, I'll take this as an achievement for me after this story. The story starts like, People call this an age of social media. We consume lots of information from these sources. The usefulness of these vast quantities of information might be questioned, but if you know what to consume, you'll always find some good stops. A tea talk video by Chimamanda Adichie has been same for me. This video was published 10 years ago in October 2009. It is still relevant in many ways for us and inspired me to write down a single story about Nepal. I'm sitting here in the bench in the octagon Dunedin. A guy in his early 30s smiled at me. I smiled back. Then he came near to me and said something in his language. I looked at him with a surprise. He then questioned me in English. Don't you understand Hindi? I replied him back. No, I don't. I am from Nepal. Then he asked if there were public toilets nearby, in English, of course. I showed him the direction, and then he headed towards his way. We Nepalis have facial and structural similarities with Indians, and this is the common single story that we face in our day-to-day life. My wife had shared a similar story. In her first day of college at University of Otago, New Zealand, a student from India came to her and asked, From which state of India are you? He didn't stop there and further started to make guesses. Kerala? Tamil Nadu? Oh, Odisha? She replied, No, I am from Nepal, to stop him. These are the common experiences of the Nepalese in the Western world. Further walking in the streets or in the supermarkets or anywhere, 
you are in public places, you are thought to be an Indian until they ask about the nationality. In my two years of experience here in Dunedin, I have been thought to be an Indian several times, but it is worth mentioning that I had been asked by a lady in a public library, library correctly. You are Nepalese, don't you? I was so pleased to hear that day. Later I knew that she had been to Nepal and stayed for a few years, so she could recognize people between Nepalese and Indian. That was nice for me. The other single story popular among Western people about Nepalese is about snow, especially here in New Zealand. Some credits for that goes to Sir Edmund Hillary, who submitted Mount Everest for the first time with Tenjing Norga Serba. Everybody knows that Nepal is the land of mountains with Mount Everest, the top of the world. But what they don't know is that the majority of the Nepalese do not experience snow and cold as perceived by them. The first question asked when you reveal your identity as Nepalese is, you must have rich experience with the snow. I have to explain every time, very few people in Nepal live in mountain and majority Nepalese don't have rich experience with the snow. For me, I have only two experiences of snow. In 2007 and 2014 in my entire life. In August 2007, an exciting discussion started in my college, within our college mates. Where should we go for the trekking? The discussion concluded that the most adventurous peak on the Purna Circuit Trail, which goes through the highest pass in the earth at 5,416 meters, the first thing that came to my mind was, yes, now I can feel the snow. I finally felt it. After five days, one day in the bus from Kathmandu to Basishir, and four days of walk, I tossed the snow for the first time in my life at Manang village at the age of 25. It was the most wonderful experience for me. But we were not lucky to see the snowfall in that trek. I had to wait for another seven years to see snowfall. It happened during my trip to a far western district of Nepal. It was the same time I experienced the road blockage due to heavy snow. I could see the buses and cars sliding down towards the side drain. Even the slowest moving vehicle was unable to move forward. It was moving its tail towards the drain. I still have the vivid memory of every single moment of that time. I enjoyed that moment very much. Now, you listeners can imagine how hard it is to explain people who will see every other part of the world with a single story, like mine, snow. Although there are abundant information and knowledge everywhere in this globalized world, in social media or everywhere, but people want to see everything from a single story. All brown collar people with dark hair are Indian, all Nepalese are Sherpas, if not Sherpas, they are Gurkhas. But there are several other stories which need to be asked before reaching to any conclusion about anything. Thank you. Thank you, Anal, for your insight into our understanding of Nepal. 
I was surprised when I learned Nepal was not all snow and Sherpas. This is Hazel. You're listening to Basement Writers in association with Literacy Aotearoa. Literacy changes lives. Improve your skills and your voice at Literacy Aotearoa. For further information, phone 47720055. I am the final reader today. My story is inspired by an idea after reading a news article. It is called A Day at the Beach. Our noisy group would make our way to the surfed most summer day, spending countless hours sunbathing and swimming at St Clair Beach in South Dunedin. I lived three blocks from the beach. My four friends lived close by as well. That was back in the 1970s where there was more sand, not the amount of rock there is on the beach now. This particular day began no different to many others. We each laid our towels on the beach to sunbathe before we had a swim. There was no sunscreen used by us and most others back then. We had not heard about the ozone layer and the damage the sun could do to our skin. I remember getting sunburn after sunburn as we lay in front of the the surf most sun most of the days that we were good enough to go swimming. I had grown up in Cromwell, central Otago, and had gone swimming with my class at the local pool. No one taught us to swim as such. The students who were serious about swimming were taught and were, would enter the competitions while the remainder of us used our swimming time goofing around. All five of us decided to go for a swim, and the ocean was inviting and warm. I don't recall if there were any flags that marked the swimming area back then. The first part we would spend mucking around and splashing each other until we made it through the waves crashing onto the beach. Jane was a strong swimmer and led us out further than I had ever been. Facing the wave as it swelled around me, I swallowed a large quantity of water and began coughing. Finding it hard to breathe between the bouts of coughing, the energy I needed to swim had left me. Feeling myself being pulled further into the ocean, I began to try and swim away. Unknown to me, I had been turned around by the last wave and was swimming out instead of heading to the shore. The attempt to swim was making me tired. I had lost sight of my friends and there was no one swimming around me. A sense of doom came over me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't care too much for the sea as I was afraid of sharks and usually stuck close to the shore for that reason. Swim, swim, you have to swim to get back to shore, I said to myself repeatedly. The shore had long ago disappeared from my view. Waiting for the next wave to arrive, I had the thought that someone would see how far I had gone. I let the wave carry me up and look to the shore. Wrong way. Where was the shore? All I could see was the never-ending ocean. What if I turned myself around? Would I find the shore? I asked myself. I waited until the next swell came. I didn't meet the wave front on. I'm at an angle to the wave. I need to turn around. Which way should I turn? Thoughts raced through my mind. Confusion began to take over and panic set in. Again, I tried to swim to where I thought the shore was. The swells that angulated toward me confused me even more. Should I turn left or right? Which way will take me back? The endless questions racing through my head added to my panic. 
I had never been told what to do if I was carried out, or if I had, I had taken no notice because I thought I would not be in that position. Turn again, remember which way to turn, I told myself, not having a clue as to which way I should turn. With the next swell, I turned and swallowed more salt water. Swim, swim, you have to swim or you will drown, I thought, coughing at water. After a few seconds, I tired. I couldn't swim even more. Even treading water was too laborious. Was this going to be the end for me? I hope a shark doesn't come. I am scared of sharks. Please, please, I won't ever come out this far again. I was beginning to sink. Not able to stay upright, I lay on my back floating along with the swell. No shark in sight. Memories of my parents and my siblings flashed through my head like a movie. Oh no, please don't let it be a shark, I thought, as something touched my arm. Swinging around, I saw a bright board. Was a surfer going over me? That would be better than a shark, I guess. A moment later, a hand followed, then the voice, Don't struggle, I'm going to guide you back to shore. Do you understand? You could have said that sooner, I thought. I thought a bloody shark was going to bite me, I replied, feeling so relieved. I have learned since that I should have given in and let the waves carry me back to shore. I always thought that they would sweep me out further. Having watched the behaviour of the sea, I now know where I went wrong. Firstly, not being a strong swimmer, I should have stayed closer to shore. Secondly, hindsight is a fine thing. That concludes our programme for today. We hope you have enjoyed listening to our stories. Has it inspired you to write your own? You're listening to OR 105.4 FM and 1575 AM. Our Basement Writers Programme is also available in podcast. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.